0: Now, would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, where, as I said last week, we're just picking up our studies in the Gospel of Luke, and we come to Luke 17, Luke uh, chapter 17. Luke 17, and we'll read from verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress uh, properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. Have you ever been conned? Well, I've been conned a number of times. Not least of all by Deal, but that's another story. Um, I... Uh, when I'm uh, studying the church, I like to pop up maybe to one of the coffee shops and uh, have my lunch, and I'll buy a paper. Uh, usually, I don't buy a paper, but during lockdown, you've had to buy a paper, and uh, I like to read the paper over lunch, and I went into the news agent and I saw a big red circle, and it says 10p on the Daily Express, so I forfeited my usual paper, and I bought the um, Daily Express thinking I had a bargain and I went to the cashier she rang up 45p and I said but it says 10p and she said but look at the small print and it said 10p large letters and then underneath in small print cheaper than the Daily Mail. I I was conned by a national newspaper. And, of course, it's a popular selling technique used by supermarkets, insurance companies, car salesmen, and some modern-day evangelists. They hide the true cost of discipleship in the small print. Jesus never did that. When it came to discipleship, or uh, when it came to those who would be his disciples, or those who were his disciples, he Led out the costs before before them. And here in the opening verses of Luke 17, we find our Lord openly and directly telling his disciples what he expects from them. Verse 1 And he said to his disciples. And from these verses, I want you to notice three things. First of all, the conduct that Jesus expects. In verses 1 to 4, Jesus reminds his disciples that in following him, they were not only brought into a relationship with the Lord, but they were brought into a relationship with one another. And that as mutual followers of him, they had responsibilities to relate to each other in a certain way. And in these verses, he tells them that in terms of their relationship with one another, they must live consistently they must confront when necessary, and they must forgive continually. They must live consistently. Look at verses 1 and 2 and into verse 3. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea uh, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin, pay attention to yourselves. Here Jesus tells us something about the reality and our susceptibility to temptation. He says temptations to sin are sure to come. The NIV says things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Literally, stumbling blocks are sure to occur that in this world there is no place we can go, no experience we can have, no doctrine that we can embrace that will take us out of the place of temptation and make us immune to Satan's devices. Temptations to sin are sure to come. We will always be tempted while we are in this world and there's no place that we can go to escape that temptation. But Jesus goes on and says to his disciples, make sure those temptations don't come through you. Make sure that you're not a stumbling block to someone else. Look at verse 1, but woe to the one through whom they come. It's possible for Christians to be stumbling blocks, to be agents of temptation in the life of others that they take the place of Satan and do his work. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 2 to underscore what a serious thing it is to become an agent of temptation, to become a stumbling block in the life of another Christian. He says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, little ones, some commentators take that as children. But when you compare it with the other Gospels, it seems that little ones refers to those who are young in the faith. Those who are young Christians. Jesus is thinking of new Christians. And he says it would be better to die a horrible death than cause a young Christian to stumble in their faith. The millstone referred to here is not a stone from a hand grinder but one of those large millstones five or six feet across that were used for grinding grain and were driven or pulled by an ox or a donkey. Better to die a horrible death, says Jesus, than cause a little one, someone new in their faith, to stumble. So how can this happen? How can uh, an older Christian cause a younger Christian to stumble in their faith? Does Jesus mean don't go out and uh, deliberately, seditiously, and seductively tempt young Christians to sin? I don't think so. He's talking about the way we live and the example we set. Look at verse three, and I think verse three really belongs to verse two. Pay attention to yourselves. The AV says, take heed to yourselves, watch your life, be careful how you live, lest the inconsistency of your living causes a younger Christian to stumble. Because people learn by watching and observing. And if you lose your temper, if you're half-hearted in your commitment, if you're playing fast and loose with the commandments of God, they might be tempted to go further than you and stumble in your faith. Jesus says, better to die with a millstone around your neck than for that to happen. In other words, we must live consistently in such a way that we set good examples to those who are watching us, especially young Christians. J.C. Ryle puts it lovely when he says, uh, let us endeavor to make our religion beautiful in the eyes of men, beautiful in the eyes of men. We are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that we do, by the words that we say. Men, read what we write, What is whether faith, faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? Well, it's not only non-Christians that are watching you. It's young Christians that are watching you. Pay attention to yourselves. We must live consistently. We must confront when necessary. Look at verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, remember, Jesus is still uh, speaking about the collective responsibility of the disciples towards one another. And he says, sin must not go unchallenged among the people of God. If your brother sins, you have a responsibility to challenge him about his behavior. Now, of course, the rest of Scripture balances that and tells us how that is to be implemented Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 9, those of you who are spiritual are to go to the person and restore him gently. Gently. He says in Matthew 18, Jesus says in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately and speak to him privately before you bring that sin into the public forum. So this statement in seven, Luke 17 is qualified by the rest of Scripture and by the teaching of the Lord. But there is this collective responsibility to watch out and care for one another as fellow disciples in the Lord Jesus. In our individual, non-confrontative Western society, this is something that we find very difficult to do. To be honest, I find it much easier to forgive than confront. I think for the disciples, it was probably the other way around. They found it much easier to confront than forgive. But I think most of us find it difficult to speak to people uh, about their sin. Yet Jesus says we must be willing to rebuke when necessary. There must be mutual accountability within the fellowship of God's people. We need courage. We need boldness. But we need love and we need grace too. When um, John Wesley preached that famous sermon against the doctrine of predestination, the other Methodist leader wrote to him to rebuke him. And uh, he started this letter, only my love for God and my love for you has forced this letter from my hand. We, we must confront, we, must, we need courage, but courage that is motivated and moderated by love. So we must live consistently. We may must confront when necessary. These are our relationships with one another as disciples, as followers of the Lord Jesus. And we must forgive continually. Look at verses 3 and 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The community of God's people are to be distinguished by their forgiveness of one another. Now, the scribes taught that you were to forgive three times, three times. The third time was the cutoff point. Three strikes, and you're out. You could forgive him three times, but then your obligation to forgive ended. Jesus says, no, seven times in one day. In another place, he says, 70 times, seven in other words our willingness to forgive one another as fellow Christians is to be inexhaustible. I notice the condition is repentance in verse 4 and if he repents there must always be a willingness in our hearts to forgive. But that forgiveness is conditional, it's based upon their repentance. We're not under obligation to forgive where there is no repentance. God forgives us when we repent, and so we forgive others when they repent. We forgive those who sin against us when they repent. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now do you see what Jesus is saying? If someone sins against you, you forgive him. That's, that's fine. Sins against you a second time, well, you're a little bit cautious. Third time, you're not sure. Fourth time, you're not going to be killing the fatted calf for the fourth time. By the seventh time, you would be wondering if that repentance was genuine. But Jesus says, even if he comes to give and ask for forgiveness, seven times you are to forgive. In other words, Jesus is saying the benefit of the doubt must always go to the person who asks for the forgiveness. It's better to forgive seven times in one day than feel to forgive a person who is genuinely repentant. Now this is difficult. C.S. Lewis says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And there's no doubt forgiveness is a a difficult thing, especially when we have been badly hurt. Do you remember the story of Corrie ten Boom? Corrie ten Boom's family shielded Jews in Holland during the war. And they were betrayed by a neighbor and the Nazis came then and took them away. And Betsy and Cory, the father died very quickly in captivity, but Betsy and Cory are taken to Ravensbrück, which was the concentration camp in northern Germany that was reserved for uh, women. And uh, in that uh, concentration camp, there was a particular guard who watched them while they showered, ogled them, called out um, uh, um, nasty things about them. And, uh, and made them feel almost in, inhuman. And uh, Betsy died then in prison, but before she died, she said to her sister that we were talking about forgiveness, and Betsy said, there is no pit so deep that the love of God cannot reach. There is no pit so deep that the love of God cannot reach. After the war then, uh, Corey went round the world preaching by the nature of forgiveness. And in 1947, she was in Munich in Germany, and she noticed this man approaching her who was that very guard that made her feel so uncomfortable uh, and really, in a way, was responsible for her sister's death. And he held out his hand and he said, Do you forgive me? Corey's anger welled up within her. And she started to walk away. She started to back away about the, from the man who caused her so much pain. And then she remembered Betsy's words. There is no pit that is so deep that the love of God cannot reach. And she reached out her hand and said, Hello, brother. So, if you're going to be my disciple, says Jesus, you must live consistently, you must confront when necessary, you must forgive continually. This is what Jesus expects from his disciples in our relationships with one another. These are the standards that he demands, the conduct Jesus expects. But secondly, notice the change that Jesus explains. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, when, what Jesus, when he says, you must live consistently, confront when necessary, forgive continually, he stuns the disciples. The standard is so high, the demand is so great, they say to him, increase our faith. They don't say increase our love significantly, but they say increase our faith. In other words, they recognize that this is something that they cannot do in and of themselves, that they need faith to implement what Jesus is saying. Without faith, it's impossible and improbable. Now, notice how Jesus responds to that in verse 6. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, here Jesus is not inventing a new proverb nor is he making an absolute promise. He is quoting a proverb that was in circulation in his own day, a proverb that was used for anything that was difficult or impossible. The mulberry tree, or as the authorized version has it, the sycamine tree, um, had a very deep and intricate root system, very complicated and proverbial. Wisdom, they used to say it would take 600 years to untangle the root system of a mulberry tree. But here Jesus speaks of that tree being uprooted and planted in the sea. Planted in the sea. With such a heavy root system, it would sink but it's planted in the sea. Even if it was in the sea, it wouldn't blossom, but it's planted, it grows in the sea. And not only is the mulberry tree uprooted, not only is it planted in the sea, but there's not a hand lifted to do that. You speak to the tree and it moves in and off itself and and plants itself in the sea. So this expression refers to the impossible things that you can't do. It's equivalent to our proverb, pigs will fly. Pigs will never fly. It's impossible. But Jesus is saying you can do the impossible with faith as small as a mustard seed. They're saying increase our faith. We can't accept this. But Jesus says if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can do this. You know in another place he says if you have faith you can speak to this mountain and it will move. Well in 2000 years since Jesus has spoken, have you heard of any mountain that has moved? Have you ever heard of a mountain being carried into the sea? Never! Because pigs don't fly. But Jesus is saying if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... The impossible can happen. It doesn't have to be great faith. It just has to be faith as small as a mustard seed, the smallest seed in a Jewish garden. Because it's not great faith, but it's faith in a great God that brings the change. Now, let's try and put this all together. Jesus says, when it comes to your relationships with one another as my disciples, you must conduct yourself in a certain way. You must live consistently. You must Confront when necessary, and you must forgive continually. And in response, the disciples say, we can't live like this. We, we can't do this in and off ourselves. Without faith, it's impossible. You cannot live the life that Jesus wants you to live in and off yourselves. It's impossible, it's unworkable, it's unthinkable. It's like trying to make a pig fly or plant a mulberry tree in the sea without even moving it. It cannot be done. But by faith, it can be done. Because by faith, the infirmity of man lays hold of the infinity of God. You cannot live a Christian life without the supernatural help of God. You cannot live consistently without his help. You can't forgive unconditionally without his help. You just can't do it. It's impossible for a, a, a Christian, for, for any person to do this in and off themselves. It can't be done. But when by faith you lay hold of God, the life of God is infused into your soul You're given supernatural strength. His spirit takes up residence in your heart, and in your up to that point barren life, suddenly the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self control comes. Jesus is saying you can't live the Christian life without being a Christian. You need to be a Christian. And so the question is not do I live up to these standards, but do I have faith? Faith as small as a mustard seed, Uh, if I am to live consistently, confront when necessary and forgive constantly, do I have faith? By faith, do I have faith? You cannot live this life without faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. By grace are you saved through faith. Don't live the Christian life without faith because you can't live without faith. It's by faith being brought into a relationship with God and the life of God then is worked out in your life. A great example of this is the early Methodists. In 1729, John Wesley founded the Holy Club in Oxford. And it was an attempt to live a holy life through methods, through strategies, through self-discipline. And that's how they got the nickname for that movement, the Methodists. But they weren't Christians. They were trying to live like Christians in their own strength and their own power through a methodology. And in 1735, at the age of 32, John Wesley went to Georgia in, a, a, in America. And he says, my chief motive in going is to secure my own salvation. So he wasn't converted. And he says uh, later in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? On his return from America, he was bitterly frustrated and disappointed. And he went into a little Moravian meeting on the 24th of May 1738 in which the preacher had failed to turn up and presumably one of the leading elders opened Luther's commentary in Galatians and began to read from the introduction and as he read John Wesley says my heart was strangely warmed on the 11th of June uh, 18 days later he was in the pulpit of St. Mary's in Oxford remember he was a minister at this stage And he preached on the text, by grace are ye saved. And everyone knew he was different. Before he was trying to be a Christian uh, by being a Christian, living like a Christian. But he was trying to live that life without faith. And it cannot be done. It's impossible. But it can be done. When faith as, a small, as small as a mustard seed, says Jesus, lays hold of God. That's the way we're changed, by faith. Don't you ever make the mistake that you can be a Christian without being a Christian. You need faith. It doesn't have to be great faith, says Jesus. Faith as small as a mustard seed is sufficient. But when faith is present, the change can come. The character that Jesus expects, the change that Jesus explains, and then thirdly and quickly, the commandment, uh, the commitment, sorry, that Jesus envisaged. In verses 7 to 10, we have a little parable. Now, um, it's a parable that I don't think I've ever heard preached on. And the reason I think why I have never heard it preached on, I have preached on it myself, but I've never heard anybody else preach on it, is because it's so simple and so straightforward Uh, Nobody thinks it needs to be explained, but it's important because it was given in the context of what we have just heard. You see, it is conceivable that some follower of Jesus comes to this teaching and says, why should I bother? Why should I endeavor to live consistently so that I don't cause anyone else to stumble, to confront when necessary? Am I my brother's keeper Why should I uh, put myself through that trauma of confronting someone else to forgive continually seven times in one day? That's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. Oh, says Jesus, remember who you are. Remember who I am. And remember what your duty is. That's what he's saying in this little parable in verses 7 to 10. The word there for servant is the word for slave. Slave. And this slave is a jack of all trades. He works out in the field, plying and shepherding, and when he comes in, he's expected to make the master's supper. Now, well, there's nothing unusual or unreasonable about that. It was the duty of every servant of every slave. Before he ate his own meal, he would be expected to prepare the meal for the master. And he wouldn't expect a thank you because that was part of his responsibility. Now, I says, Jesus, you as my followers must understand that obedience is your duty. Look at verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Unworthy servants, unprofitable servants, says the authorized version. There are things, basic things, that we need to do as Christians. And they're not optional for some Christians and not for, uh, uh, they're not intended for some Christians and not others. They're not optional um, choices. We are to, in the words of Nike, just get on with it. Well, that's not the Nike slogan. Just do it. Do it. We have obligations and responsibilities to our master. He wants us to live consistently, to confront when necessary, to forgive continually, And Jesus says, don't make a drama out of it. Don't expect a reward for it. Don't resist and argue. Don't wriggle and squirm. Don't grumble and complain. Just do it. Live like a Christian. Everyone will find 101 excuses not to implement what Jesus commands. Jesus says, remember, I'm the boss. Remember, I'm the master. Remember the words of Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade? There is not to make reply, there is not to reason why, there is but to do and die into the valley of death, rode the 600. Remember the story I told you some months ago now about the young English nobleman who went uh, to California in the 19th century, um, prospecting for gold, and he made his fortune on his way home. He was passing through New Orleans, and he came across a slave auction. Slavery had been uh, abolished in Britain for years, but his curiosity got the better of him, and he joined the crowd. And this beautiful young black woman was brought in uh, onto the platform, and she was made to parade around in front of the crowd, mostly Uh, men who were jeering and shouting and whistling and uh, making lewd comments about her. Two men were talking about what they would do to her if they bought her and the bidding went higher and higher and the Englishman stood watching the anger welling up with inside him and suddenly he shouted out double of what was the last bid and the auctioneer asked for proof of his resources and when he was shown proof, the gravel went down and he said, sold. When he stood eye to eye with this beautiful young black woman, in a last act of defiance and a cry for self dignity, she spat in his face. He didn't respond. He just took out his handkerchief, he wiped the spittle away, and he took her over to the cashier. He paid the money he received her license of ownership and he said, you're now free to go. And tears started to run down her cheeks and she fell at his feet in adoration and she says, I'll serve you forever. Well, in the light of all that God has done for us, is it not a reasonable thing? Is it not the normal thing? to do our duty, to live consistently, to confront when necessary, and to forgive continually. Do you remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 12? In view of God's mercy, the mercy that he has just described in the unfolding chapters of Romans. In, in view of all that I have told you, offer yourselves up as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable and pleasing unto God, for this is your reasonable service. To hold anything back, to keep anything from Him, is unreasonable. In the light of his mercy and grace to us, we need to, we must do. We we can do nothing else but offer ourselves up and say, "Where the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Do your duty, says Jesus. Remember who I am, remember I'm your master. Realize uh, that, uh, um, why God has saved you that he has saved you and that you can offer him nothing but a life of, un, uh, of surrendered obedience so when it comes to your relationships with other believers live consistently confront when necessary, forgive continually because after you've done all that you've only done what you should have done